Hello, flight instructors and NAFI members. This is John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors, and I am, as always, pleased to welcome you back to another episode of the NAFI More Right Rudder Podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. And today, our sponsor is actually Bose. Now, it's specifically the aviation division of Bose, and... Uh, I think we all know they make some exceptional headsets, and uh, Bose really wants everyone to understand that uh, we're around loud machines all the time, and one of the most precious things that you are born with is your ability to hear, and Bose wants to protect that. They want to make sure that uh, the quality of your hearing is maintained while still maintaining the quality of your flight training or the quality of your life because you're doing flight training or flying an airplane. Um, and so please remember that NAFI members do get uh, access to the CFI rebate program that uh, Bose has set up. And for their A20 headset, you can get a $125 rebate for buying a headset with Bluetooth or $100 off buying a headset without Bluetooth. And uh, additionally, NAFI members have access to their accommodation program. What that basically means is think of it like a employee discount. Um, and this covers all of the other or a bunch of the other products that, uh, that Bose um, creates outside of their aviation division. So um, some really cool stuff, great savings. If you want to know, want to know more information, all you got to do is go to the NAFI website at nafinet.org. If you're not a member, go to nafinet.org anyways and sign up because we'd love to have you. Um, remember, you don't have to be a flight instructor to be a member of NAFI. You just have to have an interest in learning and flight training and aviation in general. So we welcome anybody and everybody. Um, so today... Our uh, presentation is insurance claims. What can they teach us? And this was hosted or presented by Mike Adams, the former vice president or senior vice president of underwriting for Bemco. And the reason why this one's coming up is I have had a couple really great conversations with a really good friend of mine who is a NAFI member and uh, really wants people to know um, and understand what they're getting when they purchase insurance. Um, now this goes for kind of any insurance really, uh, but specifically for flight instructors, you really need to understand what your insurance covers, what somebody else's insurance covers, if it's not your airplane. Um, and, uh, you know, when you need to use the insurance that you have. So, we're going to focus on that uh, for uh, the next little bit, just as NAFI in general. Um, and this is a great place to start. Insurance Claims by Mike Adams. Um, he wants to talk about uh, different things that have happened and why people made claims, why they were or weren't covered, and uh, hopefully give you some uh, insight into what happens on the insurance side. So I really hope you, under you uh, enjoy this presentation. It's a former mentor live. And uh, once again, insurance claims, what can they teach us? Mike Adams. Mike's been a pilot since 1983. He started his private pilot training in the Hillsburg 
um, Oregon area. He's also instrument rated, which he feels is an essential uh, rating to have to your certificate. He's one of the individuals who's been able to combine his enjoyment of flying with also a career and make those two work together. Previously, he was the Pacific Northwest Regional Sales Manager, handling a variety of um, insurance uh, activities from full service FBOs, CFIs, and um, non-commercial products for aviation um, aircraft owners and renters. Um, he's been um, the president of the Beaverton uh, chapter of the Oregon Pilots Association, and also the president of the State Oregon uh, Pilots Association. Currently, Mike leads of EMCO's underwriting operations at his home in Frederick, Maryland. So without any further ado, let's bring Mike on and welcome you to the program, Mike. Oh, well, the, thank you, Paul. It's a very nice introduction. It sounds like that might have been written by my wife, but I'm not too oh, sure. Oh, there you go. <laughs> So as I said, Mike, you're one of the individuals who can combine, you know, a love of aviation with also a career, and it's um, you must enjoy blending both of those activities. Yeah, it, it is uh, real interesting. You, you do get to see a little bit of the negative side of everything in insurance, but the positive is is that we've had the information that we can start to share with uh, customers and uh, potential clients to hopefully keep them out of trouble as they uh, continue on in their flying. Uh, career or avocation, whichever they prefer on that. Well, you, you mentioned sharing. I I, um, I have a presentation that I've done for a variety of audiences, and the, the title of the presentation is Never Waste a Mistake. And the spirit of that is we're all going to make mistakes. Everybody has mm -hmm. made some kind of a mistake in their aviation career. And the key part is to you know acknowledge it, learn from it, share the information, and um, turn it into a learning experience. So I think that's gonna be the spirit of most of your presentation this evening about um, accidents, events, incidents, mistakes, and how we can all learn from them. Absolutely, that's the, that's the intent that we all go away with something that one, we can do ourselves or also share with any of our students or clients that we uh, instruct. Well, let's get going, Mike. Okay, that sounds real good. So uh, as the title says, uh, insurance claims what they can teach us. And real quick, I want to point out, um, this is Avemco information that I'm sharing. So if you're looking at some of the numbers that come up later in the program and you say, well, that doesn't match what I see in the NAL report or the NTSB, uh, that is correct. This is our information and it does not match the NTSB or the NAL report. Uh, I jokingly say if there's the potential of someone else paying for a loss, then it always gets reported. If you might be uh, have a suspension or have to take a check ride, uh, it may not get uh, reported in that case. But real quick, Avemco is a, a direct writer of insurance. We've been around since 1961. Uh, I am a private pilot uh, instrument rated. Uh, just a little interesting thing about uh, Avemco, and then we'll move on to the next slide, is that uh, we issued our first policy in 1961, along about January. And we had our first claim about three months later in, in April of 1961. Uh, the individual about the first policy was an early adopter because he also had the very first claim that we had. Uh, subsequently, that plane has been repaired and it is still on the FAA record book. So um, we've been around for a while. We know how to take care of people. So uh, a little bit uh, moving on with the, the next one here. 
what we came up with and how we formed this program and why we as an Avemco, uh, an insurance company, decided to go out and talk to people about what we saw in claims is that we do have claim review meetings where we sit down and look at the claims that we get consistently. Uh, we do an underwriting analysis of it, uh, partially to see or is our policy text and wording uh, taking care of customers as they expect to be taken care of? Or are we collecting a premium so we can pay the claims without any problems and things like that? And a couple other things came out of those meetings. Uh, that mind-numbing consistency is we came to the conclusion that we weren't very, we as pilots weren't very original in how we had accidents or what we were doing that were contributing to accidents. So that got us wondering, is it a skill level or are there some other traits? Uh, we were able to uh, connect with Dr. Bill Rhodes, uh, the US Air Force, uh, retired, uh, long about 2006. So this Airman's uh, Education Research Initiative isn't brand new, and we've been kind of talking about it all along uh, here. But uh, Bill's interest was, what are the traits or what do we as human beings do that would contribute to a loss? And as an insurance company, if we can decrease losses, we're keenly interested in that. Uh, as several people have said, a lot of the traits that make a good pilot are also the same traits that get us into trouble. So uh, now that we've got the background set, I usually do a little survey. So if we take a look at this next slide here, and if I were talking to a live audience that I could actually see, uh, I generally uh, ask someone to say, or I ask the question of everyone here in the accident, how many of you know a fellow aviator or personally know an aviator that has been injured or deceased in an aviation accident. You can mentally raise your hand and say, yeah, I do, or you can leave it down. And then the question I ask is, how many people were surprised by that? And about half the hands go down. So you have an idea of how commonplace this is. In any given audience, when I run this survey, about 40% of the people raise their hand to that first question. Yeah, they know someone in aviation that has been injured or hurt. When we get to the surprise part, about 50% of that 40%, or again, half of them, keep their hand up. They were not surprised about what had happened to uh, that pilot. And so we have to ask our question, and this is the willing or not, and I'll pose it directly to the flight instructors, is, do you teach and have you taught and have you thought about when I'm finished with this student or this client, I'm willing to climb into the back seat of their airplane, blindfolded, handcuffed, and strapped in? And if the answer is no, then you say, would you do that for a to a loved one? And again, if the answer is no, then maybe we ought to take a look about we've taught skills, but we haven't addressed part of the issue of that personality trait that may lead to an, an accident there. So Mike, when you do this, and I'm sure in some audience setting, and you, you get this kind of input, when people say they're not surprised, is that directly related to these personality traits that are very visible, that kind of show maybe a bit of a red flag? Yes, when you, when you get right down to it, Paul, they do. It's a, a bit of, uh, and the next slide does a perfect lead in, thank you on this, uh, the, the next slide here uh, does bring up some of the things that uh, came out of it is that uh, we found that, you know, doing is important and that industry overall teaches us what to do. The thing that was surprising is often we as pilots, we know what to do, we just fail to do it. And uh, this information, it came from uh, 
Dr. Rhodes' studies where he talked to experienced aviators, talked to inexperienced aviators when he could get them to talk, to talk to flight instructors, talk to aviation insurance underwriters, and also to claims adjusters. So he started to compile uh, all of this, and it kind of came out to the sort of person one is really matters a lot when you get down to uh, aviation. And the common knowledge is kind of that 50% of the audience that weren't surprised that they knew a pilot that was going to have an accident. It's just there was something that they either felt or just the uh, overall attitude of the individual. Time is of an essence. Uh, the money costs uh, too much. I'm not going to do a warm up. Uh, I don't need a briefing. It's just a local flight. I don't want to wait for the fuel truck. I've got enough gas all of a sudden, you know, even though you didn't when you called the fuel truck to come out. That's a whole nother presentation uh, from last year. What kind of pilot runs out of fuel? Well, um, you, make a, you make a very good point too, because as instructors, the instructor's job is to make sure that we're teaching how to do things correctly. I don't know of any instructor who says to a student or to a client, no, you don't need to worry about doing a pre-flight. It's your own airplane. Don't worry about it. Nobody would say that. So everybody has the skill set and they've had the right training, it's what is it about pilots that will cause us to maybe make an incorrect decision? And I'm, I'm sure that's what some of the research addressed. I mean, correct. And the other thing, and that kind of, again, leads into that uh, third bullet point, the but, you know, little or no theory of airmanship. You know, you brought up, an instructor doesn't tell a pilot to skip a pre-flight because it's his own airplane or her own airplane, et cetera. But those insidious little patterns that people develop do start to creep in. And if they're not addressed, then they become an accepted behavior. And as an instructor, if you start to see someone that does get a little bit short on the pre-flight, uh, or they don't do a weight and balance calculation, or they don't stop and think about that takeoff they're about to do, and well, I've done it before, then we're starting to see a little bit of that personality trait where complacency breeds contempt almost. And, and we well, see that uh, quite sure. a bit. And when you're doing it, when you're doing a check ride as an examiner, you are good at looking at things like airspeed, altitude, course, those sorts of things. Nowhere on your check ride can you evaluate personality traits, except perhaps judgment, but certainly not things like complacency and, you know, your attitude about time management and things like that. Right. And, and you know that the candidate's always going to be on their best behavior. It's, of course. You know, it, it's the big date night. You're cleaned up. You took a bath. <laughs> you're going to behave on it. That's right. And, and that kind of led into the thing about little or, or no theory of airmanship. Uh, and we don't have any common language. And kind of the question that I'll leave with everyone on this before we go on to the next slide is, uh, is airmanship the, the superior pilot skills because of a less than a superior decision was made? Or is airmanship a superior decision and you get by with less than superior skills? Or is it striving to have superior skills that you don't need to use because you've made superior decisions and you're flying? So that's kind of something to, to think about as we go along. So let's take a look at some of these things that we've noticed people and personality traits contribute to losses that really we ought not to have. And so John, if we can have the next slide pop up. And this is always a fun one to do. And, I don't have any way to, to check people, but I'm going to say 
all right, as you're sitting there at home or in your chair, if you had a piece of paper, general aviation, what do you think a tow bar costs? And I'll admit that the tow bar on the screen is much nicer than what I ever got with the rental aircraft uh, th that I used and things. So, you know, I'd hear anywhere from $100, $75, $300 and things. And so if we move to the next line, I'll show you how much a tow bar can really cost. Yeah, about $10,000. And that's because it was left on the airplane when the engine was started. And on this uh, slide, if uh, you can see it, on the left photo, you can see a little red arrow pointing to the uh, prop there where there's a little bit of damage. And on the right photo, you can see another arrow pointing to a scuff on the cowl. Uh, the scuff on the cowl is somewhat inconsequential, but it still needs to be repaired. That little nick on the prop is very consequential because the propeller manufacturer and the engine manufacturer say, hey, if the prop needs service or it's dinged like that, you have to do a teardown and an inspection to make sure that there's no damage to the engine. So all of a sudden, it's not just file out a, a, a blade, but it's an engine teardown and inspection. You've got a plane out of service. So it only takes you know, a minute or two to stop and think, where is that tow bar? Is it in my hand? Have I secured it in the hangar, if that's where I'm gonna put it before I take off? Or is it secured safely in the baggage compartment of the airplane? Don't make an assumption on there. And what we found with most losses on tow bars is the pilot says, well, I got interrupted in a pre-flight and sure. they just didn't back up on it. So in, in going with, uh, things that pilots ought to do or maybe rush and get into trouble. I'd like to bring up the next slide. And uh, I'll give you a little bit of story on that. And you can, again, with the same piece of paper where you wrote down $50 for the tow bar, you can jot down what you think caused that dent that is exhibited by the red arrow on the front strut. And this is a Piper PA-18. Uh, don't get distracted by the wood on the rear strut. This is a plane up in Alaska. And quite often that's how they secure the aircraft against some of the winds and things. But we've got a dent in the uh, front strut. Incidentally, there's a dent directly above that dent in the strut in the leading edge of the wing. So the question is that I ask, what's anyone think that caused that dent? And everyone goes, well, it's Alaska, it could be a moose. Uh, they maybe taxied into a lamppost, maybe it was a fuel truck on there, maybe someone taxied too close to it. And uh, those are all good guesses, but the truth is that's a tow bar accident. And what it was, pilot pulled his plane out of a hangar, got distracted in the pre-flight, started the engine, and this time instead of the prop just hitting the tow bar and that being the end of it, kind of like Arnold Palmer, it was a perfect chip shot. The tow bar <laughs> flew across the ramp and damaged that other uh, Super Cub there. Incidentally, if you ever do that, it's gonna make a lot of noise. Anyone on the airfield is going to notice that. So you won't be able to sneak away without leaving a note on the damaged airplane that, hey, you know, I did this, give me a call. I, I suppose it would sound something like a fork in a garbage disposal, huh? Um, quite a bit louder, actually. <laughs> Not that I've personally done that, I wanna point that out. <clears throat> but the, the end result is that through a little bit of inattention or rushing something, we now have two airplanes out of service and uh, quite a bit of expense that's going to affect everyone's premiums when it comes to, uh, to claims and things. And so if we move on to um, uh, some facts here, everyone loves facts in aviation. 
I just want to bring out a couple numbers, and you'll see more numbers as we go along. This dubious beginnings of flights. Uh, again, this is Avemco data. Out of 100 claims every year, I know that three of them are going to be a hangar rash. And that's where someone either forgot to lift the door enough, wide enough, didn't have marks on it or such. The thing that surprises a lot of people, though, is that 11% are taxi claims. And uh, that kind of surprised us, too, when we got looking at it. What, what, uh, what's an example of a taxi claim, Mike? Well, uh, the, the taxi claim, the, the classic uh, is, is that uh, someone's going through a tight area, and in, rather than shutting down the engine and getting out and checking it or not remembering that if the shadows are going to touch, there's a high likelihood the objects are going to touch, mm -hmm. uh, and they hit a spinner, uh, another wingtip. We've had people taxi into uh, fuel islands, actually, getting a little too close with it. Uh, a lot of it uh, is distracted taxiing. Now, I'll use a Rod Machado joke here that there's nothing that strikes more fear into a renter pilot than a runaway Hobbs meter. And so once they've started the airplane, they're going to jot down their clearance. They're going to tell the tower they've already got the ground clearance. They're going to be playing with the radios as they taxi out to the, the runway. And I learned to fly in Hillsborough. It's got a rather long runway. And at four miles an hour, it seems like the taxi to the far end of a, the predominant runway took forever. And so you start to taxi a little bit faster, and then pretty soon you're doing something. You forgot your aileron controls, your elevator controls, the gust of wind comes along. And for some reason, you just veer off the side of the taxiway, totally unbeknownst to you. At least that's what's reported on the claim. So those are the kind of taxi claims we see. As an instructor, uh, please, please don't do anything that's going to get both your and your client's head down inside the cockpit. So if someone says, well, gee, look at what that's doing over there, or I'll set this up for you, make sure that the other person is looking outside. Uh, we do see you know, submissions of, well, I was doing the multitask uh, with the taxi loss. Well, that's especially important too with the prevalence of all the automation that we're able to put into our aircraft now. It really can be a distractor when you have so many inputs that you can make and if you're single pilot, especially, you're you're going to be driven to be inside more than you should be. And ab absolutely, and I wasn't going to throw any uh, stones at technically advanced aircraft, but we have seen a bit of an uptick in our taxi losses with some of the more complex avionics that are attractive to look at or are attention drawers uh, out there. So, uh, please, if you're going to have the engine running or you're taxiing look around outside. If you're playing with the avionics and things, make sure you're stopped and make sure you've got the brakes uh, securely set, which will kind of lead us into the, some of these next pictures here. Everyone learns differently. We have the audio, one I'm not gonna sing in this presentation, and we also have the visual where you can see what happens. So hopefully this is the only time you'll see what happens to a hangar when someone hand props a Cessna 182 that has a drained battery. And one of the hand prop techniques is like when you're starting a lawnmower, if it doesn't start first, you advance the throttle a little more, a little more. And finally, about the 10th time the guy flipped the prop, that plane was ready to go. He got out of the way, no injuries to the person, but it did go across the taxiway and uh, run into the, the other hangar on the other side. That, that uh, doesn't the, look like it's gonna buff out. 
Uh, no, that's not going to buff out. Uh, <laughs> and we've got that engine tear down uh, prop and things. So that's some damage there from the outside. If we take a look at this next slide, uh, which is rather impressive, uh, this is what happens when a 182 taxis straight head on into a hangar door. And this was one where uh, the individual had started the airplane. It was warming up. They were inside the airplane. They slid their seat back so they could get something out of the back seat of the airplane. Didn't notice that the plane started to creep forward. And by the time they realized what was happened, they were far enough back that they couldn't get to the controls. Uh, the good news is, is that once the uh, plane got a little ways just short of hitting the uh, airplane that's inside the hangar, the wings blocked it from going any further on that uh, hangar door. But again, that's uh, a, a situation where the, the pilot kind of trusted the parking brakes when they, they really shouldn't uh, on that. Okay. And as, and as often yeah. the case, even in, in these events, it's not one thing that's contributing. There are several things that are contributing to this. Yes, and, and some of it could be situational awareness on it. You start a 182 and it's cold, it's going to run it a certain way. As it warms up, you know, the engine's going to run a little smoother on there. It's going to develop a little more power on it. As the brakes start to warm or something, they may contract a little bit. And so you got to pay attention to all the parameters uh, out there. Uh, not sure why the pilot decided they had to get something out of the back seat at that particular time versus before they started, but that's what happened. There's the end result. So if we uh, take a look at uh, a few more things having to do with uh, ground losses and stuff, uh, and I'm going to ask instructors here, and you can do that uh, electronic show of hands if you want. How many of you, when you're dealing with a client, and you know the client has an, a, an airplane that they store in a hangar, do you go with them and watch or help them get the plane out of the hangar. You go back and help put it back in the hangar. You notice how they do it. Because what we found with uh, hangar claims is that owners oftentimes think they know where everything goes. And so uh, that photo on the left is where someone was putting their airplane back into their T-hanger and they didn't have any uh, ground marks on the hangar floor. They didn't have any stop blocks. They just always knew that they pushed it about so far. Uh, now you can kind of tell from the damage where the red arrow is, that was quite a push. So uh, I think in the picture, the person had a storage locker or something there that kind of stuck out a little bit. But by the same token, having some visual markers on the floor stop, box, uh, stop blocks would have uh, presented that. Uh, the center picture, again, that's another uh, not knowing where the boundaries of your hangar are. Uh, that's a, uh, an elevator that got a little bit of a push on it. The uh, photo on the right is interesting. For anyone that's wondering about it, that is the fuselage of a Cessna 206. And so I normally ask people, okay, if you're working with clients with hangers or you keep your plane in a hangar, when you open the hangar door, do you know where those doors go? Have you gone out and looked at it beforehand? Have you opened the door and said, yep, they go exactly where I go? And I ask that because that picture on the right is the result of someone with a 206 opening up their hangar door, pulling the plane halfway out. For some reason, they stopped halfway out. Maybe they got a phone call, had to get a cup of coffee or something. <clears throat> Our customer, who was in the adjacent hangar, had a 182, unlocked the door and put their shoulder into the door. And these are bypass type doors. 
and got pushing it, not thinking at all about where that hangar door was going. Well, we know it went right into the side of that Cessna 206. So if you do have customers with hangers, take a look at it, see if they're doing anything from habits or things that they've just developed that might be contributing to a claim. And that brings up a question of the people that have the vertical lift doors and things, do you always lift to the full opening of the hangar? Which in some cases, depending upon the airplane, is it a lot of extra wasted lift. If you don't lift full time, please put marks on the sides of the beams along the door because we've had a number of claims that come in where the customer said, well, I always lift at two thirds and the 182 fits out just fine until the time it didn't. Then we have an anti-collision light or a nav light up there that uh, has to be repaired in another plane uh, out of uh, service. So those are, are kind of simple things that you think of, if you stop and think about it, don't get complacent. Every time you open a hangar, it's different. Every time you put a plane back in a hangar, it's a little bit different. When, and you know, Mike, what you're discussing here when you say know your boundaries, it's, it's another way of really saying you have to have really good situational awareness. I mean, we talk about situational awareness in flight all the time, but of course it starts with the pre-flight and post-flight and, and just how you're managing these types of events. Yep, ab absolutely, it does. All right, so uh, unfortunately, uh, Draco uh, hit the YouTube circles this week as a classic lead into this next slide. So let's take a look, and I'm slowly working up to more and more frequency of, of uh, claims that we see that could be used or taken, hopefully taken care of with uh, training. And that's the takeoff claims. You know, everyone thinks, well, the takeoff's fairly easy. You line up down the runway, you develop power. Uh, but what we found with the takeoff claims here is that pilots don't sit down and think about what's different about this situation. Is the density altitude different? Is there dew on the grass today that there usually isn't? Is the passenger that I've invited to fly with me larger than who I usually fly with? Have I got more fuel, more luggage? Have I been lucky before? How are the winds? What's the location of the sun? And are there any cats involved? I threw in the cats as a little bit of a story. As more pilots become involved with relocating rescue dogs and flying with pets and things, uh, you as an instructor hopefully will work with your clients to say, you know, the first time you put in an airplane, you really ought to put them in a pet carrier or have them on a leash and with someone else holding them because your pet may be the perfect deer in the auto out to the airport but as soon as they get into an airplane and that engine starts to, that plane starts to accelerate, that may be a totally different animal. And we did have one claim where a fellow decided to take his cat flying. Uh, cat was perfectly fine in the car, traveled with him in the car all the time. Um, classic cat move maneuver, started his takeoff run, cat went wild inside the cab, distracted the guy, clawed him a little bit, and the person ended up running off the side of the runway uh, during the takeoff run. So, uh, you know, think about all the different parameters, as you said, Paul, uh, situational awareness. Mike, so before you the, move on, we, we do have a question from, from one of our viewers. It's an interesting one, and that is, from where you sit and in your perspective, would you recommend um, a lesson or somebody teaching people just these topics in terms of hangar rash avoidance, how to put your airplane away, 
it's not something that as an instructor I really spent much time doing, but I think that's not a bad idea. Would, would you think that's something that we should oh, think about? I think that's an excellent idea and kind of why I, I brought it up. And thank you, Bob, for asking that question. Uh, you know, if you want to look at yourself as being the, the ultimate professional instructor, you know, the flight begins actually before the person gets to the airport. Sure. But everything about that thing with the airplane, maybe even getting down to the free coffee and the FBO before you take off, uh, is something that you should work with on your clients because we make a lot of assumptions and we, a lot of people learn by experience and we all know that experience has a high tuition involved uh, associated with it. So yes, if you can offer your services. Now, I'll admit that the client may say, I think you're trying to pad your bill and you know I don't want you to do this. That's a different topic. I'm not a, a CPA. Uh, you can handle that elsewhere. But it would be, I think, a, a service to help someone because you as the instructor, you see a lot, you've learned this, and you're going, you know, this is what Avemco has noticed, or this is what we see with losses. You know, how much stuff do they have in the hangar itself type thing? Well, Mike, I know you have quite a bit more to cover here, so go ahead, move on. Okay, so if we go on to the next slide, just to, to help us learn uh, visually, uh, some examples of what happens uh, with a loss of control on takeoff. Uh, this one ended up on its nose. Uh, you can see in the lower left uh, damage to the uh, pilot, the passenger side wing root, um, damage to the passenger side leading edge of the wing. Uh, this actually was enough to total out this airplane. So uh, takeoff losses, losses do cause some, uh, some incidents. And in takeoff losses, a lot of people are concerned about animal strikes, also with landing losses. So I brought up a, a slide, which is the next one here, that does talk about animals. And yes, they do impact takeoff and landings. But overall, now not to discount it, it's less than 1% of the claims we get out of every year on it. Uh, this uh, one here that we're looking at is a, a Piper Archer. Uh, it was a, a takeoff with a student pilot and a CFI at night. They were getting the student ready for his night uh, uh, flight train and, it, and a deer came out and hit it. The good news is, or actually they hit the deer when the deer ran out on the runway. Uh, the good news is, is that they safely stopped on the runway. Uh, the young man that was the student pilot has since passed his uh, private check ride. And as an insurance person, I'm really pleased to see those blue stains along that wing, which tells me they had quite a bit of fuel left in the airplane on their takeoff. And again, that ties into that presentation a year ago, what kind of pilot runs out of fuel, uh, which surprises you how much they do that. Um, the next slide here is, a, is another animal strike uh, that we often fear, and this is a goose and a Grumman AA-5. Uh, again, uh, VFR. The thing that was kind of interesting on this one, or actually a couple things that come out, is bird, your planes are extremely flyable after a bird strike. So the first thing is fly, land immediately. Uh, don't panic on it. Uh, the backstory on that uh, Grumman was the pilot was flying day VFR. They saw a flight of two birds, weren't sure if they were in formation, but the pilot took evasive action, managed to miss one bird and hit the other bird. So the assumption is the second bird also took evasive action, kind of like that squirrel ad on the uh, Geico insurance out there. But <laughs> again, uh, they said uh, they're very noisy when they hit, uh, but it's something that you can easily survive and land. The uh, the next slide here. This this is, is I think everybody's worst fear, isn't it? Uh, yes. Uh, the uh, this one here is the bird strike we all fear through the the wind shop. And then Tim, I see your question. I'll get to that in just a second. 
this is where the, uh, the bird came through the windscreen. Uh, fortunately, the bird didn't hit the pilot. Uh, and a, a little note, if you're talking about personality traits or things to think about, is uh, you might start to consider wearing safety glasses if you don't have to wear spectacles all the time anyway, or if you're not wearing sunglasses. Because in this situation, the pilot said he was wearing sunglasses and was extremely glad that he was because when you go from virtually no wind on your face to about 100 mile an hour wind on your bare eyes, you're gonna tear up right away and uh, make visibility a little more difficult. We had the same comment uh, when a um, goose or a duck went through a windshield of a Cessna 150 out in Coeur d'Alene. Uh, the thing that both pilots said, which is interesting, is that it took a lot of throttle and a lot of power to keep the flying speed up because they've suddenly gone from a windscreen to basically pushing an air dam through the air. Uh, now both pilots were able to land, both planes were repaired, and they, uh, they kept on uh, uh, flying here. Uh, a question that came up is, uh, were the cases I presented covered completely by Avemco or were they considered negligent behavior? Uh, I'm gonna answer that question by negligent behavior is not an exclusion written into the policy. So if all of the other terms and conditions of the policy have been met, then yes, uh, they were paid. Uh, the other thing is that, no, I'm not gonna present a claim where we denied coverage and made a customer mad. Uh, we have a very low claim denial rate. Uh, and most of the time it's because the, the pilot either didn't have the experience they presented to us when we sold them the policy, which is a material misrepresentation uh, or something like that. But to all of these claims, all conditions were met and uh, negligence uh, is not excluded from the policy. Okay, so in negligence, uh, let's move on to the next slide because we're gonna jump back to some uh, traits and area. Uh, what uh, Dr. Rhodes found out or, or came to is the, you know, the sort of person one is with a pilot seems to matter a lot whether they're going to have a claim or have a potential of a claim. Uh, having a commitment to doing it right was very critical to those that had claims versus not had claims when he looked at it. And impressing others was not a factor. Uh, the photos on this slide are pretty tragic. This is a Beach uh, B-55. Uh, it involved four fatal, and it was returning from an air show where the pilot, relatively young in their flying career, had uh, taken three friends with him to the show. And uh, there was, I think it was Bobby Yunkin at the time with the, uh, the traveler was doing the aerobatics. And so this pilot decided to show his friends that he too could do a role in a Baron. Uh, unsuccessful, uh, unfortunately, on it. One of the tragedies that came out of this is that during the investigation, uh, both by the insurance company, the NTSB and the FAA, is that people at the airport knew that this young man was trying to roll his twin. And someone had said, sure, no problem as long as you keep positive Gs on everything like the 707 over Lake Washington at Seafair when that first came out. So there's someone that maybe should have said something, but they didn't, or they conveyed the wrong message. And here's a young man that was trying to impress others. So pilots that don't have losses uh, generally are not in the business of impressing other people. They're there for the, the safety. Uh, I do wanna get a quick note here. Uh, insurance adjusters, NTSB, FAA, they all work independently. We do not share information with the NTSB. We handle claims per the contract of the policy. Uh, actually, 
uh, NTSB information isn't even able to be used if we're defending our client if there's a, a, a suit or a claim for bodily injury or property damage. So um, you can work independently with all three organizations, the insurance companies on your side to protect you. <clears throat> okay, so we've talked a little bit about uh, people. Um, just checking my notes, press others, right. Okay, and a little bit later, we'll get back to impressing others and how things uh, affect that. But let's take a look at where we humans come back and have some claims that hopefully through good instruction, we can take care of. And that's gonna be pointed out on the next slide, which shouldn't surprise too many people here that landings seem to have a pretty high number. And I wanna make a mention of that equipment related um, that the, um, 6% gear malfunction on landing. If you're a fixed gear pilot, don't breathe easy. Uh, we do have uh, quite a few fixed landing gear, gear failures or malfunctions on landings. And we don't count a landing 10 feet off the deck and then dropping the plane in and splaying the landing gear out is a malfunction of the landing gear. Uh, what we generally see is if you're into backcountry flying or carrying a lot of heavy loads, you've got a 206, uh, Cherokee 6, something like that, pay attention to the landing gear because over time it will start to share some, show some wear and tear. And at some point, one of the mains may just fold up because of a sheared pin or a crack that hasn't been discovered in the normal annual. So if you've got a, a high time airplane, you've had some uh, less than gentle landings, uh, you might wanna have your uh, mechanic, or if you're the A&P, take a closer look at your landing gear at the, uh, at the annuals. Uh, that 2% gear up landing, that's where the pilot just fessed up that, yep, I forgot, I got distracted in my checklist, uh, something uh, came up with me. Uh, it is amazing uh, how many times in the forensics uh, study of that, once the plane has been lifted back up, we run the gear test to see you know, what happened and everything works perfectly fine. So this is uh, where I usually uh, talk about, um, do a survey and say, do you all um, know what you do if you see a gear up landing and you're the first responder to get out to the airplane? And I see some puzzled looks and occasionally someone will say, yeah, you reach in and you put the landing gear lever in the down position. So <laughs> that, that's the joke of this evening here. Um, Actually, you ask if they're okay, and then uh, you make sure that if you do put the landing gear down, you clean your fingerprints off of it so that they, they can't go re retroactive on it. The, uh, the bigger uh, aspect here is the pilot-related. That 28 out of 100 claims every year are related to what we as pilots do or don't do. And so that's uh, the, um, do we know the crosswind? Have we got an alternate airport? Have we made a decision that if we get to somewhere and it's not exactly as we see it, we have an alternate and we're prepared and ready to go to that alternate. Again, it's not impressing others. It's not, I can save this type thing. It's that let's go and do the right thing to, uh, to be safe. Are we unrealistic in our abilities or uh, the, the airplane? Or are we just rusty on uh, developing or calculating our crosswind components? So as uh, instructors out there, I will uh, ask this question. Uh, how many of you, if you have some clients or regular clients that you work with, when you get a day with some nice crosswinds out there, 
you start calling your customers and offering, asking if do they want to go out and get, get some current crosswind landings in place. So I, I had the, uh, the good fortune of being an airport that had a nice crosswind landing so that the instructor was always happy to go up in horrid crosswinds because he knew that we had a bailout <laughs> to, to land on it. But the, that crosswind landing made a, a big difference with a, a lot of things. Okay, so if we take a look at this uh, next slide, what has to do with retractable gear uh, aircraft. Now, you all uh, probably thought, well, in talking about retracts, we jumped to the conclusion, well, we're gonna see a picture of a Bonanza, Mooney, a Cutlass, an Arrow or something. Uh, anything that has landing gear that can go up or down or be maneuvered is viable or a candidate for some kind of a mishap. Uh, this one uh, happened in Alaska. It's a wheel skis out there where the wheels are on their fixed axles and the skis hydraulically lift up and down depending upon whether you're landing on snow or landing on, on land. And just like with amphibious floats, you can land with the skis down on a hard surface runway and get by with it. You'll hear a lot of noise and scraping, but when you land on snow with the wheels extended through those skis, you're gonna flip over. So run checklists, pay attention, don't think, well, it's a simple airplane, uh, won't be an, an issue at all. So uh, I'm gonna move on to the next one here where we get into some pilot skills or lack thereof. Uh, this is a claim that uh, the pilot said, yep, uh, I just wasn't current, uh, my technique wasn't right. <clears throat> I hit the brakes a little too hard on landing. Uh, all things considered, looking at the airplane, the, the tires out there and the, uh, the gravel out there, that would have been a perfectly adequate landing spot had they been current and used the right technique with uh, braking. So my question here on this one is, and you don't have to answer it, is that um, which direction was that pilot landing on there? Was he coming towards us or landing away from us? You can figure out your own answer. Let's move on to the, the next slide here uh, so I can uh, not overdo my time. Uh, getting back to uh, tricycle fixed gear pilots, uh, loss of directional control on landing, ground loops. We used to think that was the domain of tail wheel aircraft. Uh, this is a Cessna 182 to prove that that is not true. This is a ground loop in a 182 due to uh, crosswind uh, and lack of uh, rudder uh, inputs on there. Results in pretty much the same thing as you get on a tail wheel. Prop strike, damage to the wing, a little bit of damage to the uh, the landing gear there. Mike, I have the opportunity to preview your next slide on okay. causes of claims summary. And probably the most important piece of data on that slide is the last piece of data. Uh, yes, that's why it's bold-faced. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, and this is a chance to uh, jot down some notes if you want some uh, backup to why you want to work with your clients on certain things uh, or not. Uh, and kind of where the, the claims are coming from, from most frequent to less frequent. So the, the question generally comes up, well, what about the other 46 or 52% of the claims? And those are usual, uh, unusual enough or not person related. As an example, we have weather related claims where the pilot's not involved at all. That, those are about 18 out of 100 every year. So that takes a, a pretty good chunk there. But yeah, take a quick look at it. Landings are number one. Pilot uh, action on landings, pilot distraction on taxiing, takeoffs, bad decision making, bad technique or something, uh, malfunction, mechanical stuff. We can pay you the better annuals, 
maybe if the thing passes an annual, but the maintenance says you need, the A&P says you need to keep an eye on it, maybe you ought to just go ahead and, and uh, get it fixed on there. And then the gear up landings on it. <clears throat> okay, so the uh, one thing uh, that I'll go on on this, um, let's go back to human factors here again on it. Uh, I apologize, I'm not sure what claim that picture came from other than it's a twin that was uh, rather badly damaged. But uh, some of the things that uh, Bill Rhodes came up with uh, on it are that we GA pilots, we're not trained to military or airline standards. Uh, we strive for that. Uh, you might push that with your clients to hold yourself to the same standards. Uh, we as general aviation pilots don't really have anyone else to put our emotions in check and say, no, I'm the weather guy, and the weather guy says, you can't fly this because the plane's not confident, or you're not confident, or your instrument uh, currency is expired on there. We are the weather person. We let the emotions get in the way sometimes. Are we, you know, the, the load master, have we got that figured out? Uh, have we got the cross-country trip figured out? And are we the dispatcher? And in all of those functions, we let our emotions kind of run amok. And here's where I'll uh, fill in a little bit of a story. Bill Rhodes, when he was doing this study, he came up with several simulator situations that he put pilots in to try and figure out which pilots had accidents or got killed in the sim situation and which pilots survived all three of them and what was the difference. Uh, I died in uh, two of the three. In hindsight, I think I survived the other two just out of dumb luck. The uh, one that killed me was that I thought I had let the emotions take over and say, I can help these people, I can do this, I'm a pilot, pilots do this, it's not as bad as it looks. Well, boy, was I surprised when that happened. And uh, a little bit of a note, uh, Loretta Godby, who is with NAFI and is listening in, she was the passenger that died with me in that. I'm gonna blame it on the passenger, not the pilot, but no, it was strictly the pilot skills where Bill put me in a situation that I let the emotions take over of me being a good pilot versus thinking like a professional. And so that moves us into the next slide where some of the things that come out, if you're gonna fly as an airman fly, we need to learn to compartmentalize. And that's the weather person, the weight and balance, the load and all like that. So we need to compartmentalize, give them all equal credence. Don't let our emotions take over. We need to have a professional detachment uh, and get that installed in our clients where, yeah, emotionally I wanna make this flight, but professionally I know that it's not gonna work. So we need to think like the pilot and not the passenger. If the journey is in, in uh, jeopardy, then the destination just isn't worth it. Thinking like a passenger is it's always the destination. Okay, so we have a few more things that come up and then we'll get back into the insurance person's favorite topic and that's uh, accident uh, numbers. Uh, we do need to be responsible. Now, public uh, uh, confession may be good for the soul. It's not always the best for everyone, but we do need to admit our shortcomings. We do need to be forthright with ourselves and with our passengers. If we say, yeah, we're gonna make this trip and then it turns out different, we need to tell them, no, we're not gonna do it. We need to be uh, honest about it and we need to check our ego in place. We're not there to be the savior of everything. And then the last one comes up into that 
willing to say something. And everyone looks at that and goes, well, gee, you know, how do I tell my buddy that they're thinking that they're acting kind of like a dumb pilot or they're making a bad decision without offending them? Um, I don't have an answer for that. That's a difficult decision, uh, difficult conversation. But the other thing about willing to say something is if you see someone that looks like they're gonna take a trip and then they scrub it because something isn't right, compliment them on the decision. I think one, one way to have that conversation, Mike, is, is to draw on your own experiences. If you see somebody about to do something, you can simply say, you know, based on my experience, this or that either happened or didn't happen, and maybe you want to rethink that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, feel mentor, free to do, basically. Yeah, yeah, any of these uh, things uh, that we've got here uh, for that. But, uh, you know, positive reinforcement. Yeah, the weather wasn't quite right. Uh, you didn't feel quite up to par. Uh, good decision. No one's going to look down on you or think any less of you for, for making that uh, that decision. Sure. So, so let's move on to the next slide. Progress. Yeah, let, let's hit the... Uh, Okay, uh, John, you may have to hit the go button. Let's let's go again. Okay, again and again. Uh, okay, well, uh, technology you gotta love it. Uh, what those three colored bars are is the red color are pilots that had zero to ten hours in make and model. The purple bars are pilots that had ten to fifty hours in make and model. And the green bar are pilots that had more than 50 hours in make and model. We didn't pay any attention to uh, total timers, certificates and ratings. We just looked at make and model time. And we said, okay, where are we seeing the accidents on our takeoff, uh, which is gonna be the far left on there. Uh, excuse me, our, um, those are um, takeoff, far left. That second to the left, second from the left is in route. The middle bar graphs are landings. The second from the right, where it has just red and green, those are taxi losses. And then the far to the right are ground losses. And ignore the far to the right ground losses. So when you're working with uh, clients and you've got someone that's transitioning uh, into an airplane, they have less than 10 hours in it, you can see that the likelihood of a takeoff loss is fairly high. If you can't take off, you can't have an in-route loss, so that's why their number's low. And there's a high likelihood of a, a landing loss. As they get a little more experience, their takeoffs, their in-routes are pretty good. Possibly they're a little bit overconfident on um, the um, landings, so those are up there. If they've got more than 50 hours uh, in the plane, then they're takeoffs aren't bad, they're making great in-route decisions, they've got alternates, and their landing accidents are a little bit less uh, because they know either how to land or, or go to that alternate. Uh, the taxi one, which is the second from the right, that's pretty surprising. Now, the, um, I won't say that we have absolutely no accidents involving taxi with pilots of 50 to 100 hours, excuse me, 10 to 50 hours in the airplane, but we have so feared they're statistically insignificant on there. But we do see quite a few taxi losses where someone is being checked out in the airplane, two heads are down, et cetera. When we get to the higher time pilot, they may have uh, more experience or more complicated avionics, and therefore they're going to um, be distracted with their taxiing. And I'll explain the ground loss on this next slide here. It'll make perfect sense to you. <clears throat> 
Okay, there is the classic example of a high time pilot in make and model with a ground loss. Uh, this is a Tundra tire up in Alaska. Pilot flew out to the bush, was gone for the day fishing or something, came back and uh, discovered that a, a bear had either come by and tested out their brand new pedicure or wanted to check the nails that they just got done at the salon. But ultimately they ended up with a, a flat tire out there in the bush. So that's a ground loss that the pilot has absolutely no control over. The longer you own an airplane, the more exposure units you have, and therefore the likelihood of a ground loss goes up. Now, the thing that's really interesting, John, if you'll advance to the next slide here, is how the fellow got home. Uh, in Alaska, they carry a pretty extensive survival emergency kit, and they had just enough patches, and I don't know if maybe they borrowed some from the other plane that was there, to patch up that tire, and those patches were good for one takeoff and one landing. That got them out of there, got them back to their home base, and uh, that's where uh, the tire was uh, replaced. Incidentally, tires like that run about $2,500, and yes, that would be a covered insurance loss. So I've got one more number here that I like to show you because insurance people like numbers, <clears throat> and that's uh, coming up. <clears throat> One of the things that we did on landing losses is we looked at our landing accidents and tried to determine how long it had been from when the person last flew with an instructor and when they had a landing accident or a landing claim. And it either came from when there was some dual signed off in their logbook or their last flight review on it. And the average time of all of our landing claims, and this is over a 10-year study of landing claims, was 373 days. And that is one reason why Avemco promotes annual flight training for their customers. We give a premium credit for it. We support the WINGS program. If you do win the WINGS pins, we're the company that buys them and sends them out to you on behalf of the FAA. And you can now use this number, 373, with your clients to help convince them that they need to fly with you on an annual basis because it's gonna decrease the potential of them having a loss. And with that, we can move to the last slide. Very important phone number. And uh, if you wanna jot that down. And now we've got, I think, a couple minutes for some question and answers, or have I used up all the time? Well, we're, we're just a little bit over, Mike, but there's a couple of comments here that we'd like to just bring up and, you know, take advantage of your expertise here. Um, the first comment was from our um, NAFI board chairman, Bob Mater, who um, made a comment that it seems like good instruction is the best line of defense against um, events like this. And I certainly agree with that. Um, I mean, this is, you know, part of our NAFI's, you know, mission is to try to take good instructors and make them better and to be able to pass that on to our to our clients and our students. The other question is, is from Bruce. If you go back to some of your data, do you have a handle on um, percentage of takeoff accidents that were due to loss of power? Uh, unfortunately, I don't, um, but it's gotta be uh, insignificant enough that it wasn't something that we would particularly okay. count on. I mean, we all train for it. We hear about it. There was a tragic uh, loss of power, double fatality out in Hood River uh, just last week, uh, two weekends ago. Uh, but the the numbers uh, from an insurance standpoint, and I don't mean to be too cold hearted, but I'm an insurance person, is that uh, it's not statistically significant.
Don't stop training for it. You know, straight ahead, get the nose down, be prepared because the loss of power on takeoff generally is fairly tragic uh, on there when mm -hmm. you look at it as far as the accidents in that way. But as far as the number, uh, very few. And well, Mike, this has been wonderful. Um, it's, it's another way of looking at safety. It's another way of looking at how we can learn lessons and um, passing some of this information on to the, to the aviation community to just do a better job.